Coming up on Check Your Balances this week, we are joined by Adam Nash, the co-founder and CEO of Daffy, which is a not-for-profit community built around a new modern way to give. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. And this week we are joined and honored to be joined by Adam Nash, who is the co-founder and CEO of Daffy. It's a not-for-profit community we are going to talk about, but he's also been an executive, an angel investor, LinkedIn, Wealthfront, eBay, Apple, you name it, Silicon Valley hero. Adam, thank you so much for, for taking time to join us today. Hey, uh, thanks for having me here. I'm I'm happy to be here. We could kind of go anywhere with your career. It's been all over Silicon Valley. As an angel investor, I'm kind of curious, and you've posted that you kind of do five or six deals a year in the angel space. Can you just tell us about that process? How does that deal flow come to you? When you become like a well-known guy, do people just, are you getting pitched all the time or, or is there a kind of a structured process to how you find those investments? You know, my my angel investing is actually not that uncommon. I think in Silicon Valley, right? I'm I'm in some ways I'm I'm a, a, a not an unusual story, right? I'm an engineer who came out, worked at a number of great companies with a bunch of great people, learned things along the way, and then as you get further in your career, you have kind of both the resources, the time, and the experience where a lot of founders say, "Hey, if I could have someone like that on my team, that might help us be more successful," and so. Most of the introductions I get are either direct from founders, um, from other investors. Um, but usually what happens is another investor that I know will be talking to a founder they're really impressed with and they want to make an investment and they say, hey, how can I be helpful? Right. That's the classic line that every venture capital says. How can I be helpful? Um, and they'll say things like, oh, um, I'm looking for some product oriented founders to have to have on the team. Um, do you know Adam Nash? I have a reputation in fintech or consumer or, or growth. And so most of referrals actually come as pull through from the founders themselves through investors that I know and trust. And that's a pretty important part of the process, right? Like it's not my primary job. I'm not a venture capitalist full time. And so for me, it's very meaningful um, to not only be introduced to a founder who is impressive by themselves, but have them basically vouched for by an investor that I also know and trust. That sounds like a valuable Rolodex to have is is the one that's in your phone right now. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, the truth is, um, and I've seen in my career because I've gone through kind of the PC era and, you know, B2B and the cloud and Web 1.0, Web 2.0, you know, kind of the, you know, fintech, et cetera. Um, but what really changed about 15 years ago is I think that having somewhat of a public reputation became beneficial because after all, a, a great founder isn't going to reach out to you if they don't know you exist, right? This is why you see venture capitalists investing so much time in blog posts and you know tweets and, and shares and, and that sort of thing, building a reputation, thought pieces. Um, and I think that's true a bit for angel investors as well. Um, but I've always found that actually the best way to find great people is actually to just go out there and do things yourself, right? You know, so I didn't, you know, I I didn't join Wealthfront or, or run that company for a number of years to kind of access founders. I didn't run product at LinkedIn to 
to meet founders or you know drop whatever. But um, but it turns out if you're out there trying to build something and ship something, I think that other people who are also trying notice, right? And then some people like what you do, and some people do not like what you do. And, um, but you know, in a funny way, that that's not a bad filter for people coming in who you might work with. I, I tend to I tell founders this all the time that they should treat fundraising as a hiring decision. Uh, not a financing decision that when they're talking to investors, whether it's an angel investor or a professional institutional investor, when you take an investor on in your company, they're going to be with your company for a very long time. And a disruptive investor, a counterproductive investor can be very counterproductive. And so um, I'd like, I, you know, in some ways I, I, I take my own advice in, in reverse. I, I like to be the type of angel investor that I would want as a founder involved with my company. You yourself are a founder of a company now. So in addition to having led large companies in the past, you now lead a company that you yourself founded, that being Daffy. How has the experience of running something that you started from the ground up different from leading a business that you were brought into you know, after that initial startup phase? Oh, there's so many differences. I mean, I've had the good fortune in my career to work at companies that almost every stage, right? You know, large public companies, new startups, kind of everything in between. Um, actually, my second job out of school after Apple was a startup that I think at the time had 15 people. I was maybe the fifth engineer at the company, although I was, I was just 23 trying to figure things out, but, you know, writing clients and that sort of thing. But I mean, if I had to, had to specify the, the two biggest differences is the first biggest difference, of course, is that the difference between doing something and, and, and watching people do it or, or advising it is just, you know, I, everyone knows that it's different, but it, it's hard to speak to exactly how different it is in both good ways and bad ways. Right. Like, you know, the truth is analysts do, you know, analysts, you know, Wall Street analysts who look at the financials of companies are brilliant. Right. And analyzing the, the cash flow and and the raw economics of the business, sometimes have being a step removed gives you more objectivity. You can see what's really happening, what's working, what's not working. We all know this, right? Like there's value to be from the outside. But when you have to do it yourself, those simple piece of advice of, you know, how to prioritize or how to phase things, take one problem after the next, or being relentless about, hey, all this has to get done, right? It doesn't matter. You know, I, it may not be reasonable. The world is not reasonable, but that that's what has to happen. It's very different when you're on the other end of that. And so, um, uh, that, I don't let that bother me. I think that's part of the experience. I think that's part of the value that gets created. And when you start a company, it really hits you how easy it would be to just not have it happen, right? Like how er there's like um, it's not like one or two things. It's not like ten things. Hundreds and hundreds of things have to happen to start a company. Some small, some large, but you know someone has to do them. And, and so it's amazing when you do it. Um, but I will say the other thing, it's actually very hard coming from it being an investor, whether it's a professional venture capital. I've worked at a couple great firms. I mean, I was at Greylock Partners as an IR a couple of times. But when you're in a great firm, you see a lot of great founders and, and you have to come to terms with the fact that there isn't one way to build a company. Um, in many ways, companies are an expression of the idiosyncrasies and, and the differences that, that people have. And so just because you've seen great founders do great things and start great companies doesn't mean you can do it. The problem space is different. The technology is different. The market's different. You're different, right? And, and how people react to you. And so probably the biggest thing for me was, was realizing that if I was going to start a company, um, it had to be authentic to the way that I build things, the way I do things. And, and hopefully that sets things up for success in, in a way. And I found some success in my career. Um, but you have to have a little bit of humility around the whole thing. Um, you have to admit the fact that you're not 
whatever famous founder you idolize, you're not them, you're you. And so you have to find a way to build a company that actually works for the way you work. Um, and more importantly, that actually fits with what you can do in a differentiated way. So I don't know. I've, I thought a lot about that over the last few years doing Daffy. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful answer. We're going to talk more about Daffy in just a second, but I want to just pivot a little bit to a side project, if you will, which is that you teach personal finance at Stanford as if you're not busy enough with these other things that we're talking about. But can you tell us about your personal finance class and what it focuses on? Are there, are there elements that you found particularly drawing you to that world? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to be clear, um, I would describe me teaching the class at Stanford as, as somewhere between a passion and a wish fulfillment for me. Um, you know, personal finance has always been an area of interest of mine. I didn't learn about personal finance. Like most people, I didn't learn about it in school. Um, I went to college not knowing a lot about it um, and was fortunate in school through both family members. My grandmother had retired and taught me a lot. My grandfather had imparted some wisdom along the way. Um, and I was able to take some coursework, but I was able to muddle through. But I've always found the topic important and actually been somewhat upset about the fact that more people aren't taught the basics of personal finance coming up through middle school and high school. And so I, I have a close enough relationship at Stanford and have enough experience there teaching different classes that they let me seven years ago start this class, Personal Finance for Engineers. It started out of a one-hour talk I was giving at tech companies across Silicon Valley. I, I gave it at more than 100 companies over the last decade. But yeah, it's now been seven years I've been teaching the class at Stanford. I make the materials public. Anyone can go find them. Um, and I've now had thousands of students go through the class. It seems to be very well received. And we go through all the basics, everything from um, compensation and income. Um, we talk about behavioral finance, the emotions around money. And we walk through the basics of kind of, you know, spending less than you make, you know, putting money aside, building emergency funds, um, the basics of investing. We even cover things like real estate. Um, the idea isn't to cover all the detail on those topics, but it's, it's more to give a, a basic framework and grounding to the students so that when they go off into the world, um, they have some idea of how to manage their financial lives. Um, just, just the basics. And, um, I realize that Stanford is is already a premium institution, uh, but most of the students in my class tend to be the first in their family. Some to go to college, certainly go to Stanford. They they feel like they've they've done well, um, and they're anxious and they're worried. They don't want to mess it up. And so I've had a wonderful experience with those students. And the fact that I've been able to make the material public, I'm hoping, is inspiring more classes like it, kind of across the country. I don't know if this resonates with you, but being a financial planner. Throughout my career, every time I worked with someone who was an engineer, I was gearing myself up for a special kind of conversation because they tend to be very granular and detail-oriented. Is that something that you find in your personal finance classes, given that you focus on working with engineering students, where it becomes more detail and math-oriented rather than broad strokes, big picture, are we doing the right thing? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I often get this question, why is it personal finance for engineers? I mean, the truth is the class isn't limited to engineers. It just turns out in Silicon Valley, if you say that the class is for engineers, everyone assumes it's really good, right? It's good and marketing. So, oh, it, it's like benefits and perks, right? Like you assume the perks at, at Google and, and Facebook are really good. So there you go. But no, um, I, it is true that the reason I, I oriented the class a little bit around engineers, et cetera, is because actually they, just like every walk of life, you know, every career has different financial challenges, 
Um, and it may sound funny, but one of the financial challenges for engineers is they're thrown out into the world at a very early age, early 20s. And all of a sudden, they have to make decisions about derivatives like stock options, right? They, they get offered a great salary. How do they make compensation decisions? What can they negotiate? What can they not? What does it mean? How do they think about their career? I mean, this is one of the reasons I got involved with LinkedIn so early is I was so passionate about the fact that the world does not prepare people anymore for how to think about a career, how to think about you know decades and decades of building skills and working. And so I talk a little bit, I oriented a little bit around those career paths. Um, I do assume that people are not phobic about math. There are some wonderful advisors out there and material that cater to people who are somewhat phobic about math, right? And how do you guide them through a financial journey if you can't talk numbers? Um, and then, of course, you know, I, you know, I, I make some engineering references. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, I, I've come up with different analogies, right? You know, most people will talk about life insurance as insurance. Um, I, of course, you know, tend to make jokes. Um, I, I first of all think life insurance is brilliant marketing, right? Going back a hundred years because it's it's death insurance, right? It's not like if you live, you get nothing, sure. right? Like that's not, but but death insurance will not sell, but life insurance, multi trillion dollar industry, right there. But no, I, but a lot of things I'll talk about, like emergency funds. You know, for an engineer, understanding buffering, right? This idea that hey, to protect your long term goals, you need to have a small allocation of money so that if something unexpected happens that short-term need doesn't impact your long-term goals. You know, buffering might not be a great analogy for the average person, but for an engineer, they understand what that means and it makes perfect sense to them. Um, and so I, I did design the class a little bit that way. But like I said, the material is public and available um, on a website, uh, cs007.blog. So anyone who is interested in checking it out is, is, is welcome to do so. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I mean, you're absolutely right. When you think about somebody's education and training being, how do I get this computer to do this? And maybe they're absolutely brilliant at it. And then your second day of work, you're staring at a form that says 83B election going, what in the hell is that? I mean, that, that that's great that you can even prepare people to, to face some of that. I mean, I, I really think that's cool that you're you're taking them through that. Well, this is why we start with behavioral finance and emotions, right? And we talk about the different biases people have. Some of it isn't just about money. Um, but the truth is, I think approaching money and finance, you have to have some degree of humility. And actually, that can be hard. Some of these students really are some of the most brilliant people, if not in the world, but they're in the top 1% academically in something. And so understanding that expertise in one area and well-earned confidence in one area can lead to overconfidence in another is something that you have to actually start with, right? You, you know, I, I open the class a little bit with saying that, you know, this is, this is not a question of IQ, right? You, you can have a, you can have a, a, a two sigma, three sigma, you have a 160 IQ, be brilliant, be one of the top in your field, but that doesn't matter if no one's explained to you how a credit score works, right? Or, or how a mortgage gets approved or how to think about investments, et cetera. It's, it's not you're going to intuitively reinvent that entire industry yourself. Maybe you could given the time, but you're not spending the time on that. And Silicon Valley, of course, and you know, technology in general is filled with brilliant people, right? You, you literally have people who might be one of only a hundred people in the world who understand AI at the level you understand it. And that has nothing to do with the decision to whether to buy or lease a car, right? And, and so um, actually, that is the framing for the class. Like I said, there are some important things in life that are not academically difficult. They're still important. 
Um, and actually, I, I found that actually the reception to that with the students and with the class, whether they're freshmen, seniors, grad students, has been actually phenomenally positive. That's awesome. That sounds like you're doing great work there. Let's transition to your current project, Daffy. What brought you to it and what are you excited about? I'm kind of holding back on presenting what you guys do because I want it in your words, but uh, tell us what took you there. Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of founder journeys, there's, there's a couple different ways I came at it. You know, Steve Jobs gave that wonderful speech back at Stanford um, over 15 years ago where he talked about connecting the dots of your life. And I think we do a company like Daffy. In some ways, I look backwards. I can see all the paths that came together for it. Um, but I mean, Daffy, uh, you know, just just to know, it's, it's a cute name, but it stands for the Donor Advised Fund for You. It's a modern platform for giving. Our, our mission is to help people be more generous more often. And the inspiration really was very simple, right? In my professional career, I've spent the last over decade, almost 15 years in fintech alone. And I've seen amazing companies, amazing products, products that help people spend better, save better, invest better. And I, I just asked the question, you know, why, what about giving, right? Could all of those same approaches, all that great technology, all those behavioral insights, all those great products, what if we apply that to giving? I mean, giving is a huge area, right? It's, it's almost half a trillion a year in the U.S., 60 million households in the U.S. give to charity every year. I mean, this is not a small problem, and it's a meaningful problem to people. And so I've been on the board of this company for six years, uh, Acorns, which has done a fantastic app helping millions of people lead a better financial life. Just with simple things like saving their spare change and investing in a low-cost portfolio. And I said, if they can do that for saving, maybe we can do something for giving. And that's really how Daffy was born. Um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it was also inspired a little bit by you know personal issues. I mean, this, this company was founded during the pandemic. I think there was a lot more focus on helping each other and your neighbors and et cetera. And as a parent of four, um, I will tell you, you know, Giving is something that, you know, I, my wife and I put a priority on teaching our children and something that I was raised to believe was part of a good life. I mean, if you go search through Amazon, go search through piggy banks, how many of them have that spot for like, here's the money you can spend. Here's the money for a rainy day. And here's the money um, that you're going to give to others that set aside for those less fortunate than yourself. And it just really struck me. I mean, I do have a design background and you always look at the real human motivations when you're, you're coming from a design perspective. Um, we care about giving because it says something about leading a, do you believe that life is purely selfish, right? Or, 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 or do you support the other people around you? And so when you have that combination of something that's such a big problem and something that people care about, I had to believe there was a way that technology could help there. And so fortunately, I found my co-founder, um, Alejandro, was one of my favorite engineers to work with at LinkedIn. We had been talking about starting a company for years. And so he, he had excitement here. And so, yeah, in the, in the summer of 2020, we jumped in and started designing and talking seriously about building what became Daffy. Giving is also, like you said, so commonplace and a, an intention that a lot of people have, but it can be unnecessarily complicated. Like a donor advised fund sounds like something that might be inaccessible to most people and like reserved for the upper echelon of wealth. But that's also because a lot of people don't understand how it works and it's hard to find a way to open one easily. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, and let's be honest, all these financial terms could use a little bit of marketing work. Like the, the 401k, who, whose idea was that? Like 
we're going to teach everyone the line of a tax code. Yeah, <laughs> really like that. And we're going to make that the brand. 403B versus 457. You're like, what is it? And you're like, yeah, no, that's literally the line of the tax code. That's all. Yeah, it is. exactly. And so, you know, actually, that gives me a little bit of optimism that the, the reason people don't know what a donor advised fund is, is just because it's been a high end product for the wealthy. It's been this product that high end financial advisors and wealth managers and family offices and high end accountants know about, but most people don't. And, you know, um, the good news is, is that the U.S. has a history of rolling out these tax advantaged accounts and then people becoming educated about them. A lot of people do know what a 401k and an IRA is right now. And more and more parents know what a 529 plan is to save for their kids college. And so the donor advised fund has been around for a very long time, for decades and decades. This is not a new innovation. This wasn't a new tax law. Um, but I think that, you know, when I have to explain it to people, I just say, listen, um, it turns out that when there are needs, you know, when the government wants to put a finger on the scale to encourage people to save for goals that are important, you end up with a structure where there are these tax advantaged accounts, right? So just like there's a 401k for retirement, or there's a 529 plan for college, I say the donor advised fund is a tax advantaged account for charity. And it turns out that there's a lot of good reasons that we want to help people be more generous and give more to charity. And that's why it exists. And so usually when I come down that path, people kind of get it. Um, it's a very, very elegant and simple financial product in some ways. I mean, for me as a product person, as a technology person, I think it's brilliant because to your point, giving is hard for most people because it combines these two problems, right? How much can I afford to give and who do I give it to? And the great thing about a donor advised fund is, is similar to other accounts. You set a goal for your giving, you put the money aside, it's invested tax-free. And then when you figure out that second problem of who you want to give to, the money's there and available, and you can be as generous as you want to be. Um, it's really a great experience for the people who use it. You've removed a lot of friction from the process, I think. And you know, I think one of the terms when I first learned about donor advised funds, and this is fairly early in my advice career, the thing that scared me was that it's that term advised is because you don't control the money, right? As the, as the consumer, in theory, you've made an irrevocable gift and it is up to the donor advised fund operator to approve whether that can go. Now I've never seen one rejected that was for a legitimate 501 C three, right? The business of donor advised funds is facilitating gifts. Has that been pushback at all? As you've explained it to people that in theory, you still have to approve the gift out. Oh, for sure. I mean, people want to understand how it works. And, and there really is no free lunch, right? There are a trade-off with all these things. And usually the trade-off with these tax-advantaged accounts in general is some impact to liquidity, some impact to being able to access the money when or, you know, for whatever you want to do, right? You know, I'm, I have my oldest now in college. And for the first time, I'm taking money out of a 529 plan. And there's a long list of what you can and can't do with that and how it works. Can I pay the bill with it? No, you actually pay the bill and then you kind of pull the money out. Like there's always a little bit of a dance there. But no, I think donor advised funds actually really do vary because the entire concept of a donor advised fund was the idea of actually taking your money and trusting it to a nonprofit to hold the money. Um, and then you can advise them on where that money goes. And I think if most people think of nonprofits they're familiar with, universities, et cetera, they're kind of familiar with that kind of concept. But it is new for a lot of people. 
And there are different type of donor advised funds. I mean, what you described, most national donor advised funds don't have restrictions on who you can give to. If it's a legal charity in the U.S. in good standing, there are regulations, right? You know, there are lists of charities that are not in good standing with the IRS and or the state of California or something like that. And you have to be careful there. But for the most part, the answer is yes, to your point. But there also are smaller donor advised funds around the country that are kind of issue driven, et cetera. And some people use them because they align with their values or what they want to see aligned, but they won't actually approve a donation to any any charity. I mean, at Daffy, of course, we, we take the point of view that, once again, our mission is to encourage people to give. And we think one of the best ways to do that is to put money aside proactively for giving. So we try to make it as flexible as possible. But I think people are smart to ask these questions, right? There is a price. Like the reason when you put money in a donor advised fund, you get that wonderful tax deduction right, for making a charitable donation is because you are making that commitment right there. You are making that donation. So it turns out the IRS doesn't just hand that out for fun. You know, it turns out that that's actually the trade-off you're making. Um, And it's a good trade-off for people who give to charity or want to set themselves up to be reliably and regularly generous with organizations. Um, But this is not a way to just save money on taxes, right? Like you're you're not getting that money back. That money is going to charity, and so um, I actually think that's the right balance. I think I think getting people to commit to give money to charity is like a lot of other financial commitments. It turns out that that commitment is the first step to action, actually doing something. Yeah, absolutely, and it, and it allows you to give while you can too, because the future is always uncertain. But if you're able to give into a vehicle that's going to have the funds there ready to disperse to charities, it allows you to control that process a lot more than just, you know, hoping you can continue that in the future and that everything remains the same. You know, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly why, you know, a lot of people, um, one of their critiques they'll have of donor advised funds is, isn't this just a product for the wealthy of people who have extra money? And and, and I'll say, no, listen, the, the truth is in the U.S. today, you can look at all the economic statistics. Income is becoming far more variable for people. Right, we have good years and not so good years. Like a lot of our members at DAF use the product. I mean, yes, we have engineers and designers, we have doctors, we have lawyers, we also have airline pilots, we have you know small business owners, we have people just starting out in their careers, and people who are in retirement and everyone in between. But the truth is, this idea of the good year, not so good year, it also has tax implications. Right, our tax rates are higher in those good years. Um, also these nonprofit organizations, whether you had a good year or not so good year, it turns out that nonprofits need money every year, right? They have to pay their people, right? If you have a food bank that's feeding people, you know, whether you had a good year or not so good year, like they, they have to help, right? They they have to buy food. They have to people working there. And so what we love about the donor advice fund is by putting money aside, in the years when you have those better than average years, you get this double win. You save a little bit of money on taxes in the years where that's actually the most valuable to save money on taxes. And you have money put aside for the not so good year so you can still support the organizations that you care about, which we found emotionally is, is really valuable to people. People really, I mean, there's different types of expenses in life, right? There's things that are easy to part with. There are things that are harder to part with, right? Like lifestyle can be sticky, um, but when people care about an organization and support it every year, it, it really is problematic for them when they feel like they can't do it in a given year. Um, and so the donor advised fund is, is kind of like having a rainy day fund to support those organizations. And, and they really do appreciate it. 
I think that's great. And that kind of leads a little bit into, you guys have a beautiful post on the Daffy website about gift bunching and, and what that means as a tax strategy. That's not something we've addressed on our show specifically. Can you just talk us through gift bunching and um, kind of how people should or should or could think about bunching a gift into a single year rather than spreading it? Yeah, happy to. And, and actually, you know, I, I said that donor advised funds have been around for a really long time. Um, but this strategy of bunching is relatively recent because it wasn't really that relevant for most people until 2017, right? The tax law changed. And one of the ways the tax law changed is our standard deduction went up a lot. Now, that's basically a good thing because that saved a lot of people on taxes, right? Like more tax savings by default. But what it also meant was that for a lot of individual deductions, like the charitable deduction, um, people who used to be able to itemize their deductions and take that take that deduction couldn't anymore. They couldn't clear the limit. Um, and so the strategy of bunching was born. And it's just like I said about that good year, not so good year. The, the idea behind bunching is if you every year give a certain amount to charity, and most of us do, right? We support maybe a, a church or a synagogue, or maybe we donate to a community center or a national cause, or maybe your alma mater. Most people have a few charities they support every year in similar amounts, right? So it's not that hard to know what you do every year, roughly. But it can turn out that if you just give that amount every year, you miss itemizing deductions every year. You just miss it. And so the idea of bunching says, well, what if you took several years of donations and gave it all in one year to clear that hurdle of the standard deduction? You'd get this extra tax deduction. And then you'd have the money in the future every year to give to charity when you want to. Now, that doesn't work if you just put the money in a bank account because you don't get the charitable deduction. But it turns out the donor advice fund was built to do this, right? And so um, if you have one of those good years, one of the ways you can take advantage of it is by putting aside two years worth of your giving, three years, five years. I've even seen people put away 10 years of giving. Not only do you clear that standard deduction and get that extra tax savings, you still, by the way, get the standard deduction in all those future years. You didn't lose anything. But now your money is invested tax-free in this donor advised fund. And who knows? You put aside five years worth of giving, maybe you get the sixth year for free. Um, and so it's really a great way to get people into this habit of putting money aside. But yeah, I wrote I wrote a post about this recently. Um, actually, Kiplinger has actually published a uh, an article on it that has an example that actually shows the graphs and the math. Happy to share the URL. But um, it's pretty easy for people to understand. All it requires, though, is just admitting something that we all know is true, which is that most of the people who give to charity give to charity every year. Like it's not an accident, right? Like there are certain organizations you support for a wide range of reasons. Turning that into a financial goal or admitting that that's part of your budget is really the first step to making these kind of smart decisions. I know we're nearing the end of our time together. One silly question as an aside, you are a child of Silicon Valley. Ross and I love the show Silicon Valley. Is that something you have seen before? Do you have any reactions to it? <laughs> well, you know, that show was very funny. Um, and I really, I was a fan of the show, I think like a lot of folks. I mean, the funny thing about it is, of course, I am an engineer. I went into this high tech career, but my parents are both doctors. Even though I grew up here, I didn't really come into tech until I was into college. But I'm um, watching that show. I would actually say that the first season was not reminiscent, um, that it, it seemed a little it seemed a little bit like what someone thinks of Silicon Valley who's not from Silicon Valley. 
But what happened after that first season is so many great people from the Valley said, no, 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 you got this wrong. Or no, 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 have you thought about this? Or no, 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 et cetera. And you know, Dick Costello, who used to run Twitter, went down. He has uh, some comedy background and a number of other people I know helped out. And so you saw in those later seasons, it got eerily, I don't want to say accurate, but those personality types were not just made up out of whole cloth, right? Like those you situations. You saw some people there. They were ridiculous and exaggerated, and some of it was very silly. But some of it was, you know, very much they like these different types of personalities. And that's because, I mean, with the boom that happened in, in technology the last 10, 15 years, and I mean, the Silicon Valley is famously a boom bust cycle. I always think in California, this all goes back to the gold rush that we're just built to do this every 10 to 20 years. But um, no, I, 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 um, I, I love that show. I thought it was hilarious and uh, it was sad to see it go. And some of those characters, both good and bad. Um, for better or for worse, you, you can definitely see elements of those around if, if you look for it. Well, Adam, we really appreciate both the work that you're doing. I think making giving, making donor advised funds a more publicly known and easier to use solution is a net benefit to the world. So we very much appreciate that as well as your time and joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. For those of you that have questions for Dan and I for future shows, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for us. We appreciate you tuning in this week. We will catch you all next time.